From God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last week I, uh, we had tacos. We had tacos last week. I heard they were delicious. Good. Yeah, I heard nothing but great things. Unfortunately, I was out of town. I couldn't join in on that, but I did hear they were great. Today we have not tacos, okay, but a sandwich. Oh, not from a catering truck like the tacos were, but a sandwich from Mark's Gospel. And I'm not talking about loaves and fishes either. That's next week's Gospel lesson. Have you ever heard of a Markin sandwich? Chances are, if you've read through the Gospel of Mark, yes, you've even had several Markin sandwiches and may not even realize it. These are delicious in their own right and good for the soul. Let me explain. Mark's gospel is the shortest of all the gospels and moves very quickly. It's, uh, if it were a film, you'd say it had, to, it had to be an action film, a lot of action. The operative word in Mark's gospel is immediately. When Jesus was baptized, it says, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Right after his baptism, it says the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. And to add one more example from Mark 5, Jesus tells Jairus' dead daughter to arise. And immediately, it says, the girl got up and began walking around. Immediately, straightway, forthwith, the King James puts it. You get the picture. With so many things in Mark's gospel happening right on top of one another then, sometimes Mark the director or orchestrator of all this, if you will, has multiple things going on all at the same time, kind of like, once again, if we were talking about a movie or a TV drama, we call them subplots, simultaneous subplots working through the episode. Or another word Bible commentators have employed to describe Mark's overlapping of events is a sandwiching of events, hence a Markin sandwich. Now you know. We saw an example I just used. Jesus was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. You remember that back in Mark 5? Well, the little girl was reportedly still alive but close to death. On the way there, Jesus stops to encounter an unanticipated woman from the crowd who just reaches out and grabs the hem of his garment as Jesus walks by. And you guessed it, immediately the woman was healed. After Jesus takes some precious time out to deal compassionately with this now healed woman, he then gets back to the main plot, so to speak, the other half of the story with Jairus' daughter, where we learn now, sadly, that the little girl has died, but not to Jesus, not to the Lord of life and death. In the other half of this Mark and Sandwich, we see that to Jesus, the little girl is only sleeping because Jesus can and does raise her from the dead. Now, wouldn't all this make a fantastic action movie? I think it really would. But I hasten to add, it's a bit of a mystery movie, too, at least as seen through the eyes of the other characters in Mark's gospel, including Jesus' own disciples. There is a mystery to it all because of something in the gospels called the messianic secret. What's the secret? all through the Gospel of Mark. Questions are being asked over and over again about this Jesus. 
questions like, what is this new teaching and with authority? And why does this man, Jesus, speak like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And from Mark 4, Jesus' own disciples ask, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Indeed, in Mark's gospel, it's all, it almost seems like the only ones who give the correct answer on this question of Jesus' true identity are the demons. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, the demons cry out. Now that's not a wrong answer, is it? Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. And as a matter of fact, St. John, the epistle writer, declares in his first epistle outright, quote, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. Okay, so yes, demons, it looks like no reward for you for coming up with the right answer on that one. And Jesus then commands the demons to keep silent because Jesus is, in a sense, sitting on the right answer for that right moment to be presented on his terms. Many people are therefore left to propose their own suggestions, thoughts, answers as to who this amazing Jesus is. That's the same thing today, isn't it? When you ask a sampling of people today that same question, the very question that Jesus will eventually pose point blank to his own disciples, who do people say that I am? You ask that today and you're liable to get as many answers as people you ask. There is a clever song written a few decades ago now that expressed very well the vastly different views that people come to take on just who is Jesus of Nazareth. The song I refer to is called The Outlaw, written by an artist sometimes called or credited, and I guess depending on your view of this musical genre, sometimes he's blamed for being the father of Christian rock music, Larry Norman. But his song starts like this. Some say he was an outlaw, that he roamed across the land with a band of unschooled ruffians and a few old fishermen. No one knew just where he came from or exactly what he'd done, but they said it must be something bad that kept him on the run. Some say he was a sorcerer, a man of mystery. He could walk upon the water and make the blind man see that he'd conjure wine at weddings and did tricks with fish and bread, that he spoke of being born again and raised people from the dead. You know, it's interesting. In the ancient Jewish Talmud, a commentary on the Old Testament and the rabbinic tradition, that is exactly how they referred to Jesus, Yeshu the Nazarene, a sorcerer who seduced Israel, the Jewish Talmud. And what's interesting about that, even Jesus' enemies back then did not try to deny his miracles, but rather, as we've already seen recorded in Mark's gospel, they instead attribute Jesus' power to the power of the devil. They say, he casts out demons by the prince of demons, from Mark 3. So a sorcerer, an outlaw, the song goes on to talk about a poet, a politician. Let me read that one. Some say a politician who spoke of being free. He was followed by the masses on the shores of Galilee. He spoke out against corruption, and he bowed to no decree, and they feared his strength and power, so they nailed him to a tree. 
That song was written in the early 1970s. But those varying images of Jesus persist to this day, don't they? And what's really amazing is that these different and competing perspectives on Jesus, they really haven't changed much at all over 2,000 years. It's in Mark 8 where Jesus asks his disciples point blank, who do people say that I am? Such an important question. And they answer, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. You know, over a billion Muslims today claim Jesus, Isa, as one of their prophets, but not the Son of God to them. But where does this idea of John the Baptist come from? That's kind of an unexpected answer, isn't it? Well, probably it stems from a guilty conscience. Specifically, Herod's guilty conscience, as described in our gospel lesson today. Today's gospel lesson fits very nicely into this whole progressive flow that Mark creates, which brings up the recurring question, who is this Jesus? Except here, Mark has Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great, this time asking the important question. Well, technically, he's not asking the question. Herod is proposing his own answer to the question as being prompted by the perplexing news that hits him about all that Jesus has been doing and now what he is sending out his disciples to go and do, namely preach repentance, cast out demons, and heal the sick, everything that Jesus himself was doing throughout the land. But it's like, Jesus times 12 now. Verse 16 of our gospel text says, When Herod heard of all this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He must have said that with a little fear and trepidation. It's at this point in the gospel that we find yet another mark in sandwich. Between one slice of bread, that being the news of Jesus' disciples, carrying on Jesus' miraculous ministry, and the other slice of bread, that being the disciples reporting back to Jesus in verse 30, which we didn't read, Mark inserts this flashback filler between these two slices to explain just why haunted Herod might mistake Jesus for the prophet John the Baptist. Herod had what we would call today a guilty conscience. Verse 20 informs us that Herod liked to listen to John. Despite John publicly calling out Herod for his unlawful marriage to his sister-in-law, it says that Herod recognized that John was a holy man. And for that reason, he kept John safe from the threats of Herod's own wife, Herodias. Well, Herodias waited for her turn, waited for, to make her move and seized upon it with her accomplished daughter that fateful night of the birthday party Herod threw for himself. Herod's infamous, you can have half of my kingdom pledge to his stepdaughter backfired when mommy was consulted on the matter. Off with his head, she cried. So as not to lose face before Galilee's elite partiers, Herod concedes the life of this righteous and holy man, John. What a king. Does this scenario begin to sound familiar to you, though? A perplexed ruler with considerable earthly powers acquiesces against his own conscience to the evil demands for the death of a righteous and holy man. 
I think you can begin to see that this flashback in Mark's Holy Spirit-inspired account is simultaneously a foreshadowing of things to come. Jesus, whom Herod mistook for John, will suffer a fate under Pilate before we... It's a very similar fate before we even reach the end of Mark's Gospel. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. But it's very important to follow the trajectory of God's word out further still, even beyond the Gospel of Mark, into the book of the Acts of the Apostles, book of Acts. There we see the disciples still continuing Jesus' ministry of preaching and healing that they started back here in Mark's Gospel. But we see there also now the mistreatment that they, like John the Baptist, like Jesus before them, receive at the hands of evil men. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 12, it says that another Herod, Agrippa I, quote, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, including James, the brother of John, whom Herod put to death by the sword. Not a cheery report. But you see the pattern here, brothers and sisters, fellow disciples of Christ, preaching, healing, persecution, martyrdom. Rinse and repeat. That was the fate of the early Christian church, and by early I mean about the first 300 years of the Christian church. Millions of martyrs, and still counting in those parts of the world that remain, remain hostile to the gospel of our salvation today. Christians who deserve our prayers still suffer today at the hands of evil men. So how do we Christians then not lose heart at this grim prospect? For that, we have to go back to Herod Antipas in today's gospel who prophesied the answer for us. Yes, that's right, like Caiaphas the high priest Herod unwittingly uttered a profoundly prophetic statement in verse 16. I quoted it earlier. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And look again at that statement. But this time with Easter eyes, post-resurrection. Look back at the astonishing ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. That's no secret anymore. The secret's out. Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus. He is the Messiah. We're not sitting on that message any longer. And millions of Christians today, Sunday, this very day are confessing out loud with us the universal creed, including the part I left off earlier. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Brothers and sisters, that's a seat of power, a seat of majesty. And Paul tells the Ephesian Christians, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, from Ephesians 2.6. Yes, Herod, Jesus, or excuse me, John, whom you beheaded, has indeed been raised raised up in Christ who is seated in majesty. Christ from thence shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And that's why it's never wise to put to death one who is made in the image of God, much less 
one who is made holy in Christ, the Lord's judgment will be immediate and just. And I believe in the resurrection of the body. So what Herod or Herodias has severed, God the Father Almighty, who made the first human body out of the dust of the earth, is able to refashion even better now and give us a resurrected, glorified body like Christ's that's fit for the life everlasting. Herod, to try to retain that little kingdom he had, was willing to kill for it. Jesus, the true king, was willing to be killed in order to give away his everlasting kingdom to us. And I would be remiss now, in conclusion, if I didn't give you the last line from that Larry Norman song, The Outlaw. Some say he was the son of God, a man above all men, that he came to be a servant, to set us free from sin. And that's who I believe he is, because that's who I believe. And I think we should get ready for our time on earth to leave. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on that day of Christ Jesus. Amen.